do have some questions that are on your heart, I would love to try to answer those. I, I started doing this years ago because the New Testament talks about how the Apostle Paul dialogued with people, and it uses the Greek word dialego, which means to talk back and forth in a kind of a question and answer format, and it's always been a very stimulating thing. I find out what's on people's hearts and, and uh, do my best to lead them back to the things of Scripture. In fact, uh, I pretty much do this everywhere I go, uh, in this country and other parts of the world, People have so many questions about spiritual issues, and I want to do everything I can to address those and, and help you with any answers. And uh, since I, I answer a lot of questions through the week, a lot of you ask me questions, particularly those of you who go to Grace Church. Uh, feel free to do that. I love you to do that. Don't hesitate. If you see me around here, just uh, anytime, please be sure you do that. In fact, a lot of times when I'm watching a soccer game, I spend half the time talking about theological issues, which is great, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. So I just want you to know I'm available if you ever catch me to do that. But anyway, this morning we've got those two microphones, and if you want to pop up to those mics, we'll just take you one at a time, and whatever question might be on your heart, I'll do my best to address. Uh, so uh, fire away. All right. Here. <laughs> just give me your name first. Okay. Ken Harvey. Ken. And uh, it's kind of a three, three questions, but they all kind of relate. And one of them is... Uh, you, you don't feel intimidated, do you? <laughs> okay. Um, Go ahead, Ken. One of them is, uh, what does it mean for man to be made in the image and likeness of God? Is right. there a difference between image and likeness? And how is that affected at the fall? Okay, let's talk about that. What does it mean that man is made in the image of God? Now, that has been debated through the centuries, obviously. The first thing it means is, I believe that man will live forever, okay? It has to do with his eternal being. Um, Everything else perishes, with the exception of, uh, that is in this created world, uh, in the physical world, everything perishes except man. So uh, when God breathed into him, Genesis 2-7, man became a living soul, he became an eternal being. So I think the image of God... First of all, is that eternal quality of life. It does not perish. And there are are a number of other things beyond that. I think um, the ability to reason, uh, that is to think, cognitive processes, none of the rest of the created world has that. The inanimate world doesn't think. The animate world operates off of a minimal brain operation. We, We often call it instinct. But man has the capability to make choices, to define his own environment, to change it, uh, to to, to change the world around him. In some ways, that manifests the character of God in that man can make decisions, can choose his course, can alter his environment, can control, can subdue, can do all the things that God has designed for man to do as sort of a vice-regent king of the earth. Remember in Genesis 1, he gave him power over everything, gave him sovereignty over everything, said subdue the earth. That, in some ways, that is, a, that is sort of a, a passed-on sovereignty. He is sort of the, uh, I think Eric Sauer was the one who, who coined the phrase uh, when he wrote that book, Man the King of the Earth. And so in a sense, he, he maintains the kind of reflection of a sovereign God in his sovereignty over his created order. And man has that created order over which he is sovereign. I think that the ability to make choices, the ability to feel things, the ability to uh, 
uh, to have emotion. None of the other created world has emotions. Dogs and cats don't have emotions. I know little old ladies think they do, but they don't. They operate purely off of instinct. They operate like Pavlov's dog, off basically trained behavior. But man has emotion. Man operates off a complex of motives and various things like that. So I think when you're talking about the image of God, you're talking about personality. Uh, you're, you're talking about the ability to think and reason and be decisive and control your environment and make decisions. All of those kinds of things are elements of the image of God. And there's more that can be said about that, but I think that's the basic element of it and that man lives forever. The fall has affected that in, in that it has... It has crippled all of those faculties to some degree because of the sin principle or fallenness or the flesh. So that all of those capabilities and faculties of man are now crippled, marred. And the result is, and this is very important to know, man cannot please God. He cannot please God. He can do some, he doesn't always do um, evil things by definition, by simple human definition. He can, you know, mother can love a baby even though she's not a Christian. But in the end, nothing that he does can really please God. He still exercises something of the image of God in his choices and through his emotions and in his motives and in his sort of delegated sovereignty. He's still a cognitive, emotional being. He's still a complex of motivations, all of those things. He's still eternal. But apart from Jesus Christ, all of that is moving him in the wrong direction. Okay. Um, I think one of the one of the great indications of the dignity of man, and man still bears some dignity from the image of God, is the is the Genesis nine prescription of capital punishment. Uh, capital punishment was not designed by God um, to retard the criminal. I mean, it does have that side effect if it's swift. But capital punishment was designed to make a statement about the dignity of man, that you just can't take a life. Because man is man does bear the imagio deo. Man does bear the imprint of God. And he is given a dignity as the, as the epitome of creation that you cannot treat lightly. And so if you take man's life, by man shall your life be taken. And not only did the Old Testament uphold that, but Jesus did as well. Jesus upheld capital punishment when Peter took out his sword and he said to Peter, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. In other words, if you take a life, then they have the right to take your life. And that, again, upholds man at the point of his dignity, still bearing a marred image of God in those capabilities and facilities that he has and in the eternal character of his being. But at that point, he cannot please God. Um, God looked at the creation that he made, including Adam, and said it's all very good until the fall, and then it became all very evil, and man no longer could please God until regeneration takes place in his life. Okay? Good question. Dr. Pilkey. This is a brief uh, topical question concerning... I just hope I understand it. Oh, it's very simple. (laughs) Very brief, very simple. Uh, in In a recent Time magazine article, Billy Graham was quoted as stating... Jesus Christ will return at the end of time. Uh, to your knowledge, was this denial of the premillennial hope a recent development with Graham, or has it been there in Graham's testimony from the beginning? Uh, I, John, I'm glad you asked that question because it brings up something that I talked about a little uh, earlier. 
Um, remember we talked about, did, did I talk to you a few weeks ago about um, virtual post-millennialism? I mentioned that phrase. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a, a boom of that. But what he means by that, if you say that Jesus is coming at the end of time, in effect, in effect, uh, you are either an amillennialist, right? Or a post-millennialist. That is to say, the end of time is the end of the millennial kingdom if you believe in a millennial kingdom. Um, if you're an amillennialist, the end of time is who knows what. They would tend to sort of spiritualize and allegorize a lot of the specifics of the book of Revelation. My, my judgment on that uh, with regard to Billy Graham would be that it, you, you will look long and hard throughout Billy's ministry life to hear very many definitive statements about doctrine. Uh, preaches the gospel, straightforward on the gospel. I have never, in, in my personal experience, known whether Billy Graham is a premillennialist or not. I don't know that it reflects anything other than a rather typical sort of generalist viewpoint that, that, it, that he would be associated with. I, 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 would, I would say that I have no uh, personal um, recollection that he has identified with any ecclesiology. I think his background, if you look at Bob Jones' university where he went, um, most people would assume would be a pre-millennial environment. Uh, I went there as a student for a brief time, and then Dr. Bob and I had a falling out, and he stayed, and I left. Um, but when I was there, I can honestly say I, no one ever told me what their eschatology was. That, that, that was not particularly an issue there, so I don't know whether he picked up anything there. His experience at Wheaton would be probably somewhat similar, although they, they tended to be years back pre-millennial to some extent. I really don't know whether that's something new or not. But it, but it is an unguarded statement, and it does give away an eschatology almost without meaning to. Because if you say Jesus is coming at the end of time, you have said that he's not coming for his church before the tribulation, because that's still during time, right? There's a seven-year tribulation and a thousand-year kingdom. If he's coming at the end of time, you have to push him at the end of all of that. And what Billy meant by that is he must have meant rapture. He must have been saying he's going to come for his church at the end of time. That's an amillennial view, really, that uh, it all just going to end. Jesus is going to come and it's all over in one shot. But I don't think you can necessarily pin him down to an eschatology. He, he sort of avoids any of those definitive things. Um, and and when, he does, when he does write issues, when he does write things that are uh, theologically oriented, he has help from others who, who maybe put their theology into it. But I don't think he's said much about definitively about those issues regarding eschatology. Okay? Next. Um, hi, hi. I'm Dan Warwick. And um, I was wondering if you could tell me what the, where the origin of the pre-mill view that um, as the church subscribes to it today, what the origin of it is from. Sure. Um, it, it's hard to go back through all kinds of history just off the top of my head, but let me say this. You can find a premillennial view, uh, I don't want to be too facetious, in the New Testament. And uh, let's start there. And let's ask the question. Uh, let's, well, let's start in the Old Testament. Let's ask the, the simple question in the Old Testament. Did God promise a kingdom to Israel? Well, there's only one answer to that, and that's yes, and everybody agrees. Even amillennialists agree that God did promise a kingdom. He promised a king and a kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7 makes it absolutely crystal clear 
that there will be a kingdom. And there's a lot of other uh, indications by the prophets about a coming kingdom. So the question then is, in the Old Testament, where you have the promise of a kingdom for Israel, has it happened? Answer? No. It has not happened. If you go, for example, go to Isaiah. Has there been a period of time in which a lion lie down with a lamb? Children can play in snake pits and not be bitten. A time when the desert blossoms like a rose. Uh, and all the other elements that, for example, Isaiah talks about. Has there been a time, like Ezekiel says, when Israel has been awakened like the valley of the dry bones, come to life, been regathered in the land, totally regenerated and entered into the fullness of, uh, of the messianic uh, reign? No. Hasn't happened. So if, if, if we just study the Old Testament, we come to the conclusion that there is a promised kingdom and a promised king. When you come into the New Testament, and that kingdom, by the way, is for Israel, but not exclusively for Israel, but it is uniquely for Israel. It is even associated, isn't it, with the land of Israel. It is even associated with the city of Jerusalem. It is associated with uh, the mountain. It even talks about a, the, the Lord splitting uh, the mountain and, and a river flowing and all the nations coming to that place. Uh, it talks about this kingdom is going to be a kingdom where ten Gentiles will be hanging on the garments of a Jew uh, and, and saying, take me to see the king. And, and so there are, the, the, the demonstration of the kingdom throughout the Old Testament is pretty clear. It's all over the place. The question is, has it come? Well, obviously it hasn't. We come into the New Testament, John the Baptist comes. And John the Baptist's message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. It's about to arrive. Jesus comes and he's the king, right? He's the king. He was uh, in the line of the king. Of course, from Mary, his genealogy was from David. Through Joseph, it was from David. Two different strains coming from David ended up in Mary and Joseph. The, the, Joseph being the legal father of Jesus gives him the right to be the king. Mary being the physical mother of Jesus gives him the royal blood. So in both cases, he has the right to be the king. The king has come. The king starts to preach. And what is the early preaching of Jesus? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of it is at hand. He talks about the kingdom, but a problem occurred. They rejected the king, right? They killed the king. So if you kill the king, guess what? can't have the kingdom. And so you had what we would simply say an offer of the kingdom which was postponed. In, uh, in the book of Acts, after the crucifixion, nonetheless, we hear this. Spoken to the Jews by Peter, it is you who are the sons of the prophets, chapter 3, verse 25, and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. It is you first. God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, the, the important statement there is this. After the execution of Christ, after the crucifixion, after the rejection, listen to this, Peter still says to those Jews, you are the sons of the prophets and you are the sons of the covenant which God made with your fathers. Though the kingdom was postponed, it's very important to notice this, Israel was not displaced. You get that? They were still the sons of the covenant. That is to say, God was still going to keep His covenant 
He has still sent Christ to bless you and turn every one of you from your wicked ways. It's very important that Peter said that to the Jews after they had executed their Messiah because what it indicates is that they were not replaced. So just following that flow, we could conclude that God still has a promise that the kingdom will still come just as it was promised in the Old Testament. But for it to happen, the king is going to have to come back another time and set up his kingdom. That's what's going to have to happen. And when you get to the book of Revelation, that is precisely what you read. Chapter 19, the Lord comes back. Chapter 20, he takes Satan, and for a thousand years, he binds Satan. And that is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament and the promises of the New Testament as well. How do you know it's a kingdom? Satan was bound for a thousand years, thrown into the abyss, sealed that he shouldn't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So you've got a thousand years. A thousand years of blessing. He saw thrones and those that sat on them. And it it goes on talking about uh, elements of that great kingdom. And it says in verse 6, They will be priests of God and of Christ and reign with Him for a thousand years. Premillennialism comes from that tracking of of biblical texts. And premillennialism simply means that there is coming a literal earthly kingdom for Israel and also to include Gentile people or other nations. That's all. It comes first from a reading of Scripture. Secondly, you can find it in the early church fathers. You can find it in the early church fathers. And then you can find it all the way through uh, church history, what is called usually called historic premillennialism. And you'll even find some of what we would call pre-tribulational premillennialism. So it's not some late invention. It's, it's been around. And as I think I may have told you, when I was in Kazakhstan, uh, last year at this first Asian conference, had 1,600 pastors there. They said, will you teach on the future of the church? And I said, well, I will, but I don't want 1,600 pastors coming out of the mountains here and, and come in and teach them something that's contrary to what they've always believed. So I said, help me before I teach eschatology to understand what they believe. And uh, I know they haven't had influences from the West particularly, so I want to know what they believe from reading the Scripture. Well, the answer was this. They believe that Jesus is going to come and set up an earthly kingdom because it was promised in the Old Testament and because it is described in Revelation 20. Amazing. They literally got it out of the Bible. That's right where it came from. Uh, you, you cannot come up with a post-millennial viewpoint from reading the chronology of Revelation. And you can't come up with an ah-millennial viewpoint from simply reading literally the book of Revelation. You have, to, you have to spiritualize it or allegorize it. And most of, for example, most of what amillennialists would do would take the whole book of Revelation and move it back in history so that it's already, already, it's already completed. Many of them would, put it, would use it to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. I've read a lot of amillennial descriptions of Revelation, very recent ones coming out of Australia among the Anglicans over there who are sound and solid guys but take this view. And I am telling you, I have never read two descriptions of an amillennialist view of a historic past fulfillment of the book of Revelation. I've never read two views that are remotely alike. 
Why? Because if you're going to try to fit the whole book of Revelation into past history, it's extremely difficult to do. But that's what they do in order to come up with a, to accommodate a postmillennial perspective. So I think just simply from reading Revelation, you're going to come to chapter 19. Jesus comes and boom, he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, he releases Satan. A rebellion happens. He, he uncreates the new heaven, uh, the heaven and the earth, recreates the new heaven and the new earth to go in the eternal state. A simple understanding of uh, Old Testament prophecy, a simple understanding of New Testament chronology leads me to conclude that a premillennial position is accurate. Uh, other views have grown up based on, let me, let me just qualify this because I think it's important. Other views have grown up on the basis of two things. One is taking all the Old Testament promises of a kingdom to Israel and giving them to the church. Okay? In other words, saying we are the new Israel. Saying Israel, when they crucified Christ, was cut off and that ended everything. The problem with that is Acts 3.25. That's why I read it to you. You are still the sons of the covenant. You are still the sons of the prophet. You are still the one who will be blessed. And you're still the ones whose iniquity will be completely turned away. Not to say nothing of Romans chapter 11. Has God forsaken Israel? No, no, no. May it never be. God has not forsaken Israel. They will be grafted back in. Their day is coming there is a future for Israel and so forth. So if you're going to get rid of a kingdom in the future, you've got to get rid of the promises to Israel. How do you get rid of them? You, you say the church is the new Israel and you make them all spiritual and you give them to the church. And you say, well, it isn't really a physical kingdom. It isn't really a literal kingdom. It isn't a real lion and a real lamb. It isn't really Isaiah 9, the government of the earth. It's just the spiritual rule of your life. You spiritualize all of that. And the problem with that and it's a significant problem, is now you have a double hermeneutic. In other words, you've said all of the curses promised to Israel if they disobeyed came to pass literally on Israel. But all of the promises to Israel when they obeyed come to pass spiritually in the church. So you have split every passage and said the bad part is literal and the good part is spiritual. And that is not a fair hermeneutic. That is not a fair way to interpret Scripture. If all the curses came to pass on literal Israel physically, then we can believe that all the promises of blessing will come to pass on literal Israel physically. Because God doesn't talk out of both sides of His mouth. Uh, we want to maintain a literal hermeneutic in both cases. So um, you have to spiritualize, you have to push this stuff back into history and invent some scenario in past history to fulfill the whole book of Revelation. And I've never read any two of those that are in any way, shape, or form like each other. So there's no commonality of how you can achieve that. So premillennialism really goes back to that. By the way, another little interesting footnote, uh, and, and this is not necessarily a hill that, that everybody wants to die on, but the question then is about the rapture, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Uh, and the reason we discuss that a lot is because there's no explicit statement in the Scripture as to when it's going to happen. Um, but those uh, people in Kazakhstan, I, I said, well, I want to know what they believe about the tribulation. I want to know what they believe about the rapture of the church. And I was amazed to have this guy who was in charge of this meeting say to me, well, they believe that, that before the kingdom, there's a time called the tribulation and that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. I said, where did they get that? Well, they got it out of Revelation 3.10 where it says there's an hour of tribulation coming upon the whole world, but that we will be kept from that hour. 
It's, it's interesting to me that in just reading the Scripture, they came up with a pre-trib, pre-mill viewpoint. And so naturally, when it came to be Friday and I gave my eschatology, I just, I just refined what they had already come to believe. Now, the fact that they believe it doesn't make it true. But I think you can find all the way back in the church fathers evidences of these kinds of things. The pre-tribulational rapture got much more refined in later times. And I need to answer one other aspect of your question, and it's this. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, that was a late invention. Well, let me tell you something. There's, there's a very important thing to notice when you study theology, and that's what's called, that's what's called historical theology. Okay, there's what's called a progress of dogma. From the time of the early church, right on up until our present time, the church has undertaken to refine and codify, as it were, and, and, and sort of put into creeds the great doctrines of Scripture. And there is historic dealing with those doctrines. You can see the early doctrines that the church councils fought about had to do with the Trinity. And then they got into issues about the deity of Jesus Christ and the nature of Jesus Christ. And they were battling over those kinds of things and they, they fixed those. And then they got to the Reformation period and the whole issue in the Reformation was, was uh, soteriology and the doctrine of salvation. And they really worked hard through those years to refine the great Reformation doctrine of salvation. And it wasn't until after that, believe it, uh, that, that even ecclesiology started to get dealt with. That's why that you have a dead church in Europe. You have the seat of the Reformation there, but they never they never had a biblical ecclesiology, so the apostate church stayed intact. So when they began, they began to deal with ecclesiology, and the last thing in the sort of the progress of dogma was eschatology, and it really only started to be really refined in the 18th, 19th centuries, and even on into this one. So it's been the last uh, issue to, to be dealt with uh, thoughtfully, but. Um, the historical arguments against premillennialism aren't, aren't that strong. The, the historical arguments for, say, a pre-tribulation rapture aren't strong. Uh, you have to take the progress of dogma in, into view there as well. Okay? Because that, that's a longer answer than you wanted. But I think it helps you to see maybe the breadth of, of the issue at hand. Okay? Which one we got? You got it. Okay. Uh, my question comes out of Second Corinthians 5.10. Uh, where he talks about being recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And um, I just was wondering, how does the reward system work, and how can I be recompensed for something bad if I'm a child of God? That's a good question. Second Corinthians 5.10 obviously fits into a very important context, and, and it's very important to understand that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is uh, the, the bema seat, it's called. It's the Greek term. All of us who are believers are going to stand before that Bema Seat. Not talking about unbelievers. That each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Just a couple of things that are very important. The word bad here is a Greek word, phaulos. Phaulos, transliterated P-H-A-U-L-O-S. It doesn't mean bad. It's not like the word kakia or paneros. It's not a word about sin or evil. It is a word about useless. It is a word about worthless. Faulas meant worthless. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us, verse 9 says, our whole goal, our whole ambition is to be pleasing to Him. And that's what's going to be at, at issue when we get into the presence of the Lord and we come before the judgment seat. 
we're each going to be rewarded for the deeds done in our body based on what is good, that is, what is lasting and permanent and has real eternal value, and what is foulos, what is worthless. Now, to understand this particular passage, you need to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And here I'll show you what is good and what is foulos. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 12. If any man builds upon the foundation, the foundation is Christ, you're a Christian, Christ is in your life, and you're building your life on the foundation. You have a lot of building materials you can use. You can build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, would you please notice, none of those is evil, right? Straw is not wicked, and uh, straw makes bricks and wood builds things. But each man's work will become evident. How? The day, that's the judgment day, the same day he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 5.10. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. It's going to be kind of like a burning thing. If you bring all your stuff from your life and you put it in this place and it's got gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire turns on, what's going up in smoke? Wood, hay, and stubble. You can't burn gold. You can change its shape, but you can't burn gold. You can't burn silver and you can't burn Precious stones. So the point is simply this. There's a lot of stuff in our life that is going to burn up. Now listen carefully. When you come to the judgment seat of Christ, are you going to have to answer for your sins? No. Why? Because somebody already answered for your sins. Who was it? Jesus Christ. Did He bear in His own body on the cross your sins? Was the penalty completely paid for your sins? Are you now, according to Romans 8, 1, under no condemnation? That's correct. You will never, ever, in the presence of God, face any of your sins. You will never be judged for your sins. You will never be held accountable to your, for your sins. Your sins are not going to be shown on a screen, as I heard preachers say when I was young. And you're going to sit there and cry like a baby while everybody watches your sinning going by on the screen. Are you kidding me? In heaven? There's no, there's no movies about sin in heaven. There's no sin there. Not mine, not yours, not anybody's. That's not going to be an issue there. We're not talking about wicked things. We're talking about stuff that burns. What does that mean? Just earthly things. Temporal things. The things that don't have eternal value. That's the foulos stuff. It's not a question of sin. Sin is dealt with. Jesus paid the full penalty, did He not? And God has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification means. Your sins are all dealt with. On that basis, you go to heaven. If your sins weren't dealt with, you'd go to hell and have to deal with them yourself. So the, the, the wood, hay, and straw is just the stuff of this life that goes up in smoke. Like you say, hey, you know, I, I was very successful in my career. I went out of the master's college. I got a good job, worked up in the company, became president, built a great company, and uh, we built a real good widget, and we sold them all over the world, and we employed a lot of people, and we had a really quality company. Puff. That's just for here, right? That's just for here. But when you say, while I was going up in that company, I had the privilege of leading 20 people to Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, Right? I taught a Bible study. I served the Lord. That'll last. That's eternal stuff. That's the stuff that relates to God. That's the stuff that relates to the spiritual realm. 
That's the stuff that lasts forever. It's just talking about the stuff of life. You achieved a certain thing. You made a certain amount of money. You lived in a certain house. Uh, you accomplished something in life. You, you took a great vacation. You went to Tibet and climbed a mountain and shot the Dalai Lama or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, hey, that's interesting stuff, but that's not going to last. That's what he's talking about. So when we get to the, when we get to the time of our judgment, before the Lord, the, the, the useless stuff. And you know, you can spend a lot of your life on that useless stuff, can't you? A lot. And as I was saying yesterday in church, God wants you to enjoy some of the things in this life, but He knows they'll all burn up too, right? I mean, it's fine to take a walk and smell the flowers and look at the sky. And If your heart is thankful and you're praising God and glorifying God in the process, then it's got some lasting value. But just the stuff itself is going to go, and that's what he's talking about here. So just be careful what you build your life with. And you want to major on the gold, silver, precious stones because that will, will survive the fire, which will test the quality of each man's work, and then you will receive your reward. So your reward will be based upon what's left when the temporal earthly stuff is gone. Now, what is your reward? Simplest way to say it is... Um, it's going to be opportunity to serve the Lord throughout the glories of eternal heaven. I, I don't know any more to say than that. You're not going to go around with 42 crowns hanging off your head. You're not going to have little buttons all over your chest showing how many little deals you won. Um, in fact, if, if we do get any crowns, the, the picture in the book of Revelation is that we'll cast them at Jesus' feet and give him all the glory anyway, so we'll be all decrowned immediately. So we're not parading in. Somebody said, well, I'm, look, I heard people preach, you know, well, we're sending up material, boy, and by our life, we're sending up material, and the more material you send up, the bigger your mansion's going to be. That isn't how it is at all. You're going to live in the Father's house. John 14 says, in my Father's house are many rooms. We're not down the street and four blocks over in the ritzy section in heaven. We're all in the Father's house. We all have a room in the Father's house. It isn't where I live, it's who I'm with, isn't it? I just want to be with Him. And that's the way it'll be. So we'll all share in the common eternal life. That's the magnificent parable, and I need to mention it, of, Acts, of uh, Matthew 20. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Remember all those guys working? Some work 12 hours, some work 9 hours, some work 6 hours, some work 3 hours, some work 1 hour. And at the end of the day, uh, the Lord came out and paid everybody the exact same wage. And, and that was amazing. Because some people had worked 12 hours. It's Matthew 20, if you want to read it, the first 15 verses. And they all got paid the same. And so some guys started complaining about, wait a minute, how can you pay these people to work one hour the same wage that you paid us who worked all 12 hours? And the Lord says, because the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And that's a simple principle. If the last are first and the first are last, then everybody's the same. You got it? That's what that means. Because if you're last, then you're first. If you're first, then you're last, then you're first. So everybody's the same. It's a dead heat. And what is Jesus saying? When we get into the kingdom, folks... Whether you worked one hour in the cool of the day and gave a brief service or whether you sweat 12 hours through the hottest part of the day, when it comes to the end, you're all going to receive the same eternal life, the same Christ-likeness, the same glories of heaven. So there are elements of our eternal life that are going to be the same for all of us. What is the difference? What is the reward going to be? Some way in which we will express our service to Christ. Our capacity to serve Him, a significant duty in our service there, that's the best we can say. Not something we wear, but something we render in service to Christ. Okay? All right, next. Uh, my name is David Fry, and I, I ask this question in good nature and uh, with the greatest respect to authority. Um, how does the uh, devotional book, Experiencing God, uh, pertain to 
uh, some of your messages on the church and mysticism, but more importantly than that, how does this whole movement of uh, receiving a word from God or getting a gut right. feeling from God, um, how does that stand against God's word? Is it pleasing to Christ? Well, David, I appreciate you asking the question because I said something in my message a few weeks ago, whenever it was, that uh, some of you may have been concerned about. And what I said was this, and, and I'll answer that question specifically, but what I said was this, I've never felt the leading of God. Right? Remember me saying that? I have never felt the lead, leading of God. Neither have you, really. I mean, uh, you can't feel it. Um, th that is a very mystical statement to say that I felt led by the Lord. We, we say things like that all the time. Oh, the Lord led me here. The Lord led me there. The Lord led me there. You want to know something? The Lord does lead you. He really does. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God, right? Romans 8, 14. Um, John, in John 14, Jesus said, and the Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth. Of course, primarily that was to the apostles, but it extends to us. The Lord does lead our lives. In fact, I'll go a step further. He is so sovereign that He leads every aspect of our lives. He leads. The issue is, do I feel it? Answer? No. I've never felt it. I don't know what it feels like. What does it feel like? I don't have a, I don't have a red light on my forehead that goes bing, 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 bing when God is leading. I don't hear voices. There is no physical way that I can feel or sense God's leading. That is purely an arbitrary judgment on my part. Purely. Because there's no way to feel that. I, I don't know when Satan's working in my life. Do you? I know when I'm being tempted, but I don't know if that's Satan, if that's a demon, five demons, or just me. I don't know that. I have never felt God. And in the truest sense, I, can, I know He's leading, and I can look back and see the leading as it comes into clear focus. But I can't feel it at the time. That's what I was saying. And to say that you can feel God is very concerning to me. For example, you hear some people say, and this is very common, just reading a, a section out of a book by Gordon MacDonald and some other people talking about this kind of stuff, and just really sub-Christian mysticism, not Christianity at all, this, this viewpoint. One of the new things is the idea that when you pray, don't talk to God, listen. What? Prayer is, is talking to God. Prayer is an act, not a state. You understand that? Prayer is not a state. It's not a self-induced state. Prayer is an act. And it happens when you open your mouth. Prayer is not a conversation. If I want to listen to God, there's only one place I can go. Where is that? It's the only place He ever spoke. You say, you mean to tell me that, that God doesn't give you impressions? No, He may give me impressions. I just don't know that He gave them to me. Do you? How do you know He gave them to you? What absolutely accurate means do you have to determine that God gave you any impressions? You don't have any. And the Bible gives you no pattern to know that. The way you will experience God is as He moves in your life, accomplishing His will, sovereignly doing what He will, leading in your life, but you're not going to feel that. 
you're only going to see the result of that. Okay. And I used the illustration the other day. Somebody gave me $1,800, and that was unexpected, and I went to visit a family where the mother was dying of cancer, and they had no carpet in the house, and all these little kids, and it was cold there, and this was in another place, and this is a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, this, you, you need some carpet in this house, and they said, well, we can't afford it, it costs $1,800. Oh, well, somebody just gave me $1,800, and I didn't know what to do with it. I, I'm just a conduit here. So now they have carpet. I didn't feel anything when somebody gave me that, but I know there was a purpose unfolding that God had in mind. I mean, it's just too coincidental. I'm not saying God doesn't lead. I'm just saying you can't feel that. The only way God is ever going to speak to you is through this book that you're going to know accurately He is speaking. When you get outside of that, you run into all kinds of problems. And if there's a weakness in experiencing God, there's a lot of good things in that book. A lot of straight, foundational, good things. But you have to be very careful that you're not out there outside the boundaries of Scripture feeling around in some kind of state for God who doesn't make contact with you that way. And then what happens is, how do you keep yourself from the Toronto blessing or anything else that uh, comes down the pike and wants to define itself as the work of God? God only speaks through His Word. He leads, and we can see His leading in retrospect. We can look back. I believe God leads my life. I believe the Lord wanted me to be here to speak to you today. I believe the Lord sovereignly knew what the question would be, the issues would be, the things would be on your heart. I believe God orchestrates all the way, but I can't feel that leading. Do you understand that? I don't have any hot buttons. I don't hear voices. I don't get visions. All I can do is just, in fact, uh, somebody said to me, you know, when I went to speak somewhere, did the Lord lead you here? And I said, I don't know. I'm here. Now, either the Lord led me here or I came on my own. And I don't know the difference. So it may be that the Lord led me here and He'll achieve His will, or it may be that I came on my own and He'll overrule mine. But I don't know that, I, I can't tell you what either one feels like. And that's the issue that I have. You have to be very careful not to create a Christianity that is an induced kind of state in which you're sitting around waiting to, to feel impulses and emotions and feelings to guide you when the fact of the matter is you, you live and walk by the, by the Word of God and in retrospect you see the sovereign unfolding of God's leadership in your life and the only way you can see it is in looking back, not in feeling something along the way. That is, as I said, sub-Christian mysticism. And mysticism, as I pointed out, says you come to truth and you come to blessedness through feelings, emotions, intuitions. Like people say, I felt an impulse from the Spirit. How did you know it was the Spirit? Well, I just know it was. I just, I, I just know it was. How, how do you know it was? Is that, you don't know it was. So you don't want to live your Christian life that way. You want to make wise decisions. And you want to pray and say, God, please, I want to do what's right. I want you to lead me. And I believe he does lead us. I just don't believe there's a physical way to feel that. That's all I'm saying. Okay? So when you read anything, and you find, you're going to find a lot of books that have a lot of good things in them and some things that aren't that good, you just have to learn to be very, very discerning. Don't, Christianity is not a state. It's not a self-induced state where you're sort of sitting around in a vacuum waiting for something to happen. That's mysticism. Ours is an objective Revelation. God only speaks directly and specifically through His Word.
That's the only way you can be sure that he is speaking. Well, time is up. Let's have prayer. Stand up. Father, we thank you for the way in which you do lead us through your word. And, Lord, we don't want to be just led all over whimsically by our feelings. We want to, we want to be led by your revealed word. And where the word doesn't speak, we want to pray faithfully, and seek wise counsel, and step out trusting you. We know that if our hearts are right, if we're living a godly life, if we're obedient to you, you will lead us. And you'll lead us by our desires. The psalmist said to delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desire of your heart. And we know you meant by that that you'll plant the desire you want there. Just like a, a man desiring the office of, an, of, a, of a pastor or an elder. That's a desire that you put there. We, we don't know that. We can't feel that. But all we can do is follow our heart's desire. And if our lives are right, then you're putting those desires in us. We can trust you for that. Lord, help us to be most of all committed to the Word of God, committed to studying it, learning it, and applying it in our lives. Bless every person here, every student, every faculty member, staff member. Lord, make us all you want us to be. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.